And then as I walked out of the coffee shop, he yells out, look out, everyone, she's Muslim, she's probably got a bomb. Yeah, and, and I worked at the Office of Multicultural Interests, worked closely with the Equal Opportunity Commission, would counsel people on racism, and I walked out of there with my head hanging low in silence, holding back the tears till I could get into the bathroom, lock myself in the toilet stall and cry. My name's Andrew Lee. And welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Anne Ali is the first woman of Muslim faith to serve in the Australian Parliament. Born in Alexandria in Egypt, her family moved to Australia when Anne was two, and she grew up in Albury-Wodonga, Sydney and Brisbane. Before entering Parliament, Anne was an influential researcher on counter-terrorism, who'd been invited to address a forum convened at the White House by President Obama and spoken to the Club de Madrid. But as she tells the story in her new autobiography, Finding My Place, hers was a most unlikely journey, with more than a few speed bumps along the way. Anne is a wise and funny colleague, and it's a pleasure to have her on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. I like wise and, what was the other one, funny? I like that combination. (laughs) So you're born in 1967, which you said makes you a child of the Naxa. What does that mean? Um, The Naqsa is the kind of colloquial Arabic term used to refer to the Six-Day War in 1967, in June 1967, between Israel and and Egypt, but also with the backing of other um, Arab armies. And it was where Egypt actually lost the Sinai um, and Syria lost the Golan Heights. But it was... um, And then the Naqsa literally means the setback. Uh, But it was quite a humiliating defeat for the United Arab Armies because their might was on display. You know, they had had amassed thousands and hundreds and thousands of of, um, artillery and um, a real show of military strength. And Israel's show of force really paled in comparison, but the Israelis won. And so in this... Setback year, your uh, your parents welcome you into the world. Do you say that they were uh, part of Egypt's massive working class? Uh, but there's clearly a, a sort of deep valuing of education there. You tell the lovely story in your book uh, about your grandfather driving over 200 kilometres to enrol your mother in nursing school in Cairo. Yeah, there is, you know, and I don't know, um, you know, anyone who's been to Egypt or knows much about the culture in, and indeed, um, among Arab Arab nations, there is um, there is a lot of drive for people to be educated, and in, in some ways, it's seen as a form of social mobility. But there are still deeply entrenched class differences that prevent a lot of that Mm. and there's somewhere else in the book where I I say you know when I returned to Egypt at the age of 18 um spoiler alert um (laughs) I say you know (laughs) I say that yeah the son of a doorman can only really ever hope to be a doorman even if he gets a medical degree um so yeah education was has been a real driving force in my family history but also in my own life Mm, mm. Was Australia the first choice for your parents to move to? No, it wasn't. They had never heard of Australia and it was so (laughs) far away. Actually, they'd applied for Canada um, and then they heard that Australia, because this was when Australia had opened its gates, um, its doors or its borders, um, to non-European immigration. So my parents were in the first wave of that non-European immigration as the um, so-called white Australia policy was beginning to be dismantled or towards the end of its dismantling. Um, and uh, But but the um, 
the uh, the papers came for Australia first. So they said, oh, we'll give it a go. We'll stay there for five years. After five years, decided, oh, okay, time to leave. But then they their temporary home became their permanent home. And uh, you were angelically behaved in the uh, immigration interview, I understand. <laughs> of course. Well, according to my mother, this is the story that my mother tells. And I think perhaps sometimes she embellishes it a bit, but I don't know. Apparently, I was so misbehaved at the interview with the Australian official at the embassy for their immigration. Then when they walked out of there, my mother just... Um, you know, was crying and my father said to her what are you crying for and she said there's no way there is no way that Australia is going to take us did you see the way that she behaved she just was so sure this was a reflection of her bad parenting and that Australia was would refuse us entry and my father turned around to her and said no no I've read up on it Australia was settled by criminals so she'll fit right in Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so your family settled uh, first in Albury, Wodonga, uh, and then moved to Earlwood in, in mm. Sydney. Uh, and you started school not at age five, as, as many Australian mm. kids do, but at age four. Why mm. was that? I, um, oh, my, my sister had started So I've got a sister who's about 18 months older than me. And so it was her first day at school and there was a Catholic school down the road. And, um, again, this is one of my mother's tellings of the story. So, you know, we'll see how much we can rely on it. But um, uh, it was a Catholic school down the road and my, my mother took me along to drop my sister off at her first day of school. Um, and apparently, again, I don't, I, there's a theme running here about my behaviour, um, <laughs> which seems really implausible, doesn't it, Andrew, considering I'm wise and funny, right? <laughs> I didn't say you were well-behaved, <laughs> and certainly not during question time. <laughs> um, apparently I, I um, threw a big tantrum um, that the poor nuns at the uh, school took pity on my mother and allowed me to start school a year earlier. Um so and and I guess it's kind of again another theme that's run through my life because I I loved school. I excelled academically and it was probably because it was one of the few things that I felt I did excel at. Was never good at sport, but um you know could pass a test very easily and um get top marks very easily. And your parents were so excited about education that they even at one stage took the opportunity to send you to school on Sundays. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the most hilarious stories that runs. Like, these are one of those stories that you'll pass on to your grandkids. And, <laughs> and uh, but, like, my, my parents um, hearing that there was a school that ran on Sundays they were awfully impressed by the Australian education system, Angie, because they thought, look at this, we can send our daughters to school on Sunday and they'll get a head start in maths and English. So, you know, off we went to Sunday school um, and uh, when we came back a few hours later with our little Jesus stickers and Jesus loves me colouring in book... My parents were like, what's all of this? And we said, well, that's what we learned at school today. Jesus loves me. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we never went back. (laughs) How devout were your parents? Um, They weren't. uh, I think think there was um, a devotion to religion, but a sense that the practicalities of living in a country where you know, there were no, uh, you know, um, there was no halal food, you know, there were no halal restaurants, there wasn't the kinds of um, facilities I guess there are today, uh, and I guess that kind of took over. So we didn't really go to mosque very often, except maybe on the feast days, but. Even then, very rarely, um, because my parents were working. So I guess that the reality of life kind of took over, but they re- they remained quite traditional in their values mm. and perhaps culturally traditional as opposed to that being um, part of being religiously devoted at all. 
at all. Um, but as they grew older um, and, you know, when we grew up and we left home and all of those things, um, as many people do, they reverted to being more religious. Uh, but, but still quite traditional. I mean, I do remember we fasted Ramadan and I, we still hold that tradition. I still, I still fast Ramadan even though I don't practice in a lot of other ways. That's probably the one thing that I do hold on to. Um, when I can, of, of course. Um, yeah, still very... I guess for them it was about negotiating a pathway or negotiating a life as Muslim Australians because they were probably one of the earliest waves to come, to come here. And your parents, as you said, nearly left Australia for yeah. Texas uh, when you mm. uh, in 1974, but then decided to move to Brisbane instead, mm. where you arrived just in time for the Brisbane floods. And, and you said your family lost everything in those floods. Yeah, we did. We were one of those statistics. So these were the uh, these were the um, the long weekend floods uh, um, in in Brisbane, and we lived in Hillend. We'd, we'd, that was my. The first home we bought in Australia was a two two on stilts, a typical Brisbane on stilts home in a suburb called Hill End, which was by the, the river. And um, the river flooded and, and we lost everything. The, the, the waters came right up to the second storey. Um, and we were evacuated. Uh, and it was there that my parents forged a relationship with the church because they were the people who helped us, you know, the charity that uh, that they gave. And they were lifelong friendships, lifelong friendships. And one of them was Mrs Radcliffe, who even when we um, later moved away from Brisbane, would come and visit us in Sydney, you know. She came to all our milestones, school graduations, everything. And... Um, yeah, she was one of those people who, from the church, f- who showed charity towards my parents uh, during the time of the floods. So it was a, it's quite a, a um, I guess a, a wa- watershed is that the right word to use? A significant mm. event in their lives. That's really interesting. You make it sound as though what they lost in physical capital was almost more than made up for in social capital. Absolutely, and when you think, you know, in, well, this was nineteen seventy. I think it was, um, but yeah, as as new migrants to Australia, and particularly new migrants at a time when Australia was coming to terms with non-European immigration, there was a lot of that kind of um, you know, racism that they faced. There was a there were a lot of barriers that they face that they faced, and um, and this was just that 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 side of Australia, that warm heart of Australia mm. that really welcomed them and that I think really made Australia home for them. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who have those experiences when they come here. They might have these kinds of negative experiences of entrenched racism or discrimination, but they get these glimpses of the heart of Australia through their personal interactions with people um, and 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 I think it's important that they are they are the images of Australia that we carry in our hearts. When you were ten, you changed your name from Azza to Anne. Mm. Um, Azza strikes me as a beautiful name, but I can see how in the Australian school ground it might be uh, Azza. Uh, exactly, <laughs> it, it, it sounds more like a sporting cry than a, than a, child, a child's name. Uh, did you did you wrestle over that, or do you always wanted to? No, change? I hated my birthday because it's actually pronounced Azza, um, which no one could say. Right, so I was constantly correcting people, Azza, Azza. And, of course, the guttural A is not part of the um, English uh, phonet- phonetic um, alphabet. So um, nobody was ever able to say it. And I used to go home crying every, Mum, nobody knows how to say my name. Can't I change my name? And eventually we got it changed by deed poll. To Anne. <laughs> Do you ever use Azza in any context? My husband will call me Azza <laughs> just because he likes it and he can't pronounce it properly either, but there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, I don't use it anymore. Um, there are you know, some of my 
uh, relatives who will call me that every now and then. Um, but, yeah, no, like pretty much I've been Anne for way too long. Yeah. <laughs> you also talk about around this age of uh, the experience of your mother asking you and Hassam and Rhonda to go and play in the backyard while she spoke to a police officer about the domestic violence that mm. she'd been experiencing. It's something you just you touch on very lightly in the in the book. It's it's almost it's almost, it's almost like it's happening in the in in the background, but but is that was that much more salient when you were gro- growing up? Or? No, but well, not really because it was the only time that I can remember. Um, but it was significant enough to warrant that call to the police and um, and be the, the mobiliser for our move to Sydney when my mother came in a week later and whisked us away without my father knowing um, and we moved to Sydney. Um, and you know, for all intents and purposes, she was just going, she was leaving my dad, uh, and so it was really. And and perhaps there were other things that didn't stick out in my mind. Perhaps it was because that was such a significant event that I recall it, but I don't recall any other any other moments. And I do refer it to, to it quite subtly in in the book um, because there's when you write a memoir like that, that's so open and, and, and not holding back. There are stories that you wonder if they're your stories to tell or if they're other people's stories to tell. And so you can only really really tell them through your eyes. And through my eyes, it was through the eyes of a 10-year-old. And it was about being in the backyard and trying to listen to what the police were saying in that room and not understanding why we were leaving my dad behind and how was it that we were going to be a normal family mm. if we were leaving without dad and we were trying to live without dad um and and so you know for it to be truly my story it had to be told in the way that I saw it back then as a 10 year old um and 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 so it is seen through a kind of a haze through a veil of of it not being really clear what happened or whether it was an ongoing situation or, you know, whether um, you know, my mother lived with domestic violence. I don't know. But I know about that particular incident. Mm. After you moved to uh, Sydney, you, uh, you tell various stories about the challenges of, of growing up mm. in, in a uh, pretty white environment. Mm. Uh, the one that really struck me was uh, when you tell a story in the playground of Belmore North Primary School uh, of a girl called Christine spitting at you because of, because of who you were. But the, the the real frustration seems to be not the way the child treated you but the way your teacher responded. Mm, mm. Do you know, like, you know, everyone has a villain from there. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh because you have, you have one too. There's a villain from your primary school years. Um, you know, a kind of a Cruella Deville character that uh, that that, that um, remains in your psyche, and and yeah, it, and to the point where if I ever had a daughter, I would never call her Christine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I meet a Christine, I kind of like step rather rather cautiously. Um, and so and so Christine was this villain, and she would um, her and her her sidekick Iris would sneer at me and whisper whispering as they as they walked past me and get me into trouble and um she just really 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 hated muslims always told to hate muslims but she did stop me one day in the in the um in the yard and asked me if i believed in jesus like and i describe her as one of those charismatic preachers um, do you believe? <laughs> I say uh, yes, sir. Um, <laughs> and um, then she spat in my face. But but it's true. I, I then went to the teacher and was curtly dismissed, and then and then threatened with being sent to the principal's office again. Um, and that was what really really hurt um, because. I 
no matter what Christine did, the fact that there was nobody who was willing to recognise for me that that was wrong, no form of recourse open to me, that gave it this, this not just a tacit nod, it justified what she did. Um, and it was, it, it, yeah, I think that's what really gave me a sense of justice. And I think, you know, when we look at the, the kinds of things that we do now in Parliament, like the debate that we had over 18C, I, I, looking at that, and, and while we're having that debate, I was writing this book and I was writing that section, that chapter of the book, and it reminded me of just why I was so passionate about the Racial Discrimination Act and ensuring that people who um, were racially vilified or were discriminated against because of their race had some form of recourse because it just brought back those those memories and those feelings of being 10 years old and being told um, that I had no right to think that what Christine did was wrong. So it wasn't as much that there were bad people in the system, it was that there was no recourse against the, the, the wrongs that were done. Yeah. Really sparked the social justice. But the, the yeah, you know, just having that... Um, having someone say to you, yeah, but that's wrong. Mm. You know, when you're a kid, you instinctively know. We're well, socialised, aren't we? But that's how we, we socialise our young people, socialise children to know right from wrong. You know, you can ask a six-year-old, is it right to tease somebody or to say horrible things about somebody because of the colour of their skin or their religion or, you know, the colour of their... or whatever. And a six-year-old will tell you, no, that's wrong. So it's really the adults who ruin it. (laughs) You have this... um sort of beautifully ambiguous passage in the book where you write, to others it often feels like a most extraordinary thing about any of my achievements is that I managed to pull it all off while being female, brown and Muslim. Uh, But I get the sense too that you don't regard those things as invariably being disadvantages and you also see the times at which they've been advantages as Mm. well. Talk to us a little about that. Yeah, and I think think you're spot on there, Andrew. I think... I think when when the view is or when I get the impression, as I say in that passage, that people um, marvel at my story because they think, wow, how did she manage to pull it all off? She's actually brown, Muslim and female. It takes away from the credit of, um, of being able to own your successes mm. because of your hard work. And I have worked incredibly hard um, to achieve things in my life and so that's the kind of sense that I get but there are times when you need to be able to use um, all of those things that you are and who you are and own who you are and that's taken me a long time to come to grips with Um, um, you know it's it's taken me you know 50 years um, to to accept that this is who I am, um, but also to accept that there are things that I will never change about how people see me. I cannot control how people see me. I cannot control that, um, you know, how, how what primary identifier people want to use for me. I may primarily identify myself by my achievements, but somebody else may primarily identify myself may by the colour of my skin or my beliefs or my origins or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, that that passage is very early on in the book. In fact, in the, I think it's in the first, first chapter or perhaps even the prologue. Um, but it really is saying and setting up, you know, um, this is what I always get judged by. But maybe there are other... Maybe there's something else and maybe mm. we can look at these other things. When you finished your high school, your parents uh, took the family back to Egypt where you seem to have moved from sort of uh, uh, the, the bottom of the pecking order in Australia to the top of the pecking <laughs> order, attending the mm. uh, uh, American University in Cairo, the, the most uh, prestigious university in the, in the country. Mm. And talk about what it felt like to be an AUC. And... Culture shock. 
Absolute culture shock because um, we weren't. We were from the the working class. You know, my my entire family is working class. We're not. We weren't from the elite, and because. Um, the A- AUC, the American Universities, at that time at least was a very elite institution. The fees were very high. It attracted the sons and the daughters of ambassadors and um, bankers and uh, you know, royalty from other Arab countries. Um, Queen Rania of Jordan uh, was uh, a classmate of mine. And, you know, they all rocked up in Daddy's Mercedes-Benz and <laughs> full, yeah, it, was, it was just this completely different world from what you might find on the university campuses of Australia here where both you and I have worked. Um, and, and it was, it was just such a culture shock because it was, an, I, I, when my parents said, we're, we're, you're going to Egypt and when it became clear to me that I was to stay in Egypt... Um, I thought that perhaps this was a way of finding place because um, place that had eluded me for all those years that I'd been growing up in Australia where I was consistently told and consistently made to feel foreign, alien. Um, So I thought, okay, well, going to Egypt, uh, maybe this is where I'm going to find that that place, that belonging. But it wasn't. It it was a different kind of kind of... um, I was a different kind of outsider, a different kind of foreigner, a different kind of alien because I was in this space where everybody um, came from a background of of real elitism in these class um, structures Mm. and I didn't have any of that and... um, you know, the girls within the, the walls of the AUC would uh, would talk about you know the 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 their their um, counterparts outside of the walls, and I think you know that's me. You're talking about me. I'm that middle class. Mm. You, as you finished your studies, you uh, got married to uh, to an Egyptian man, Sharif, mm. and then uh, moved back to Australia. Why did you decide to, to move back to Australia at that point in your life? Um, I think I'd, I'd, I'd pretty much had enough of living in Egypt. I'd finished my university degree. But also I was pregnant with Adam, with my firstborn, um, and I, I really didn't want to have that long-term life in Egypt that my sister had. So my sister had moved back um, and she had um, she got married in Australia, moved back and and had this this life that she'd set up in um, in a small a, a small village. In fact, the village where my mother is from. And I would look at her life with you know she was she's got four children back then. She probably, she had two at the time, and it wasn't the life that I wanted. I didn't want this village life. I wanted to be home and home was Australia and I wanted to raise my children in my home um so yeah we came back came back to Australia came back home and you you had two boys born in Perth Adam and uh, and Karim and then you write in the book that Adam was about 18 months old when when the the domestic violence began um and didn't stop and yet you talk then about the decision to leave Sharif uh, with a one-year-old and three-year-old yeah. sons as being the hardest thing I ever had to do. Absolutely. Why, why, was, that, why was that so hard? It is hard. And, and you know, it, it was hard and I can understand when people say, oh, you know, these women who are in domestic violence situations, why don't they just leave? It is incredibly difficult to leave, incredibly difficult. And I think for me it was the overwhelming feeling of guilt um, that it was my fault that I just, I wasn't a good enough wife. Um, I, I wasn't patient enough because this is what I was told. I was told, you know, you know, you just, you just got to be patient. Be patient because the first few years are the hardest. Um, and and yeah, there's, I think there's a line in there where I say, you know, we wear, 
we wear um we wear our unhappy relationships like a badge of honor saying this is what a good wife looks like yeah um and i think it really was the guilt of looking down at my sons and just thinking oh, my actions in leaving your father to, you know, to my sons is has an impact on them has an impact on them in that um, they're not going to have mum and dad, you know. And perhaps it did come back to, you know, being that 10-year-old, getting on a plane with my mum and my brother and sister going to Sydney and saying, well, what about dad? Where's dad? You know, how are we supposed to be normal without dad? Um, um, but, yeah, it, there's guilt, there's um, feelings of failure, there's um, a sense that it's your fault. There's a wondering how you're going to cope on your own. Um, I, of course, had nothing. I wasn't working, had no money. Um, and yeah, all of those things make that one of the hardest, hardest things I've ever had to do. In the subsequent years, it seemed like some of the, the toughest period of your of your life, uh, getting by on welfare benefits, mm. which took five weeks to, to kick in. You talk at one stage about the feeling of leaving half the supermarket groceries behind because you couldn't afford to pay, pay for them all. How does that shape you now as, mm. you, uh, as, as you look back on that time? I think it has a, a huge impact because um, you never forget that. No, it's it's those significant moments in your life that if if your life was a puzzle, right, and and you couldn't possibly fit all of your life into that puzzle, and you had to pick the jigsaw puzzles that make up your life, it's moments like that that would go into the jigsaw puzzle. Um, and and so you never forget. But what what it does is it gives you this this empathy with people who have less, mm. this empathy and, and but also a passion to ensure that people who are on welfare and an understanding that not everyone's there out of choice. In fact, most people aren't out of, there out of choice. Um, most people are there because that's what welfare is for. Um, and, and, you know, to, to demonise people as lazy, dull bludgers, um, yeah, when you've been there, it's almost like a personal insult. Yes. When 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 people be uh, demonised like that, because you think, hang on a minute, I was there, that was me, and I wasn't lazy, and I wasn't a dull bludger. I was there through no circumstances of my own control, and it's not like I wanted to be there. So I think that that um, has really given me a passion for standing up for people who, through no fault of their own. Uh, have come to rely on the welfare system. And you then taught English as a second language mm. and you, you talk about the, the role that your parents played in, in moving to Perth and mm. helping you support things. And then um, there's a, a lovely discussion in the book about your second marriage to Dennis, mm. about the, uh, the blended family and how ultimately that marriage didn't work. And you talk about the story of the shiny kettle. Yeah, the A+. Plus. It was a real, and again, one of those jigsaw pieces that makes it into the the, the puzzle of 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 who you are and what your life is. And it's interesting, isn't it, what we remember and what we don't remember about our lives and what what are significant moments? Because this was really about me polishing a kettle. Right? Sounds so bland and mundane, but it was a momentous moment of 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 real self discovery because i was i'd spent an hour polishing this kettle in the kitchen and thought right now he's going to come come through the door and he's going to notice that kettle and he's going to notice how shiny that kettle is and he's going to turn to me and he's going to say oh you polished the kettle well done and i stood there and he walked in and he looked at the kettle well, I don't even think he noticed the kettle found something else to complain about and walked away and I was left standing there going, but but, but what about the kettle? And it was a moment of realisation that I had I'd been chasing an A-plus from the places and from the people where I was least likely to get them. 
Um, and it just, it, it, it was, it's, it's one of those moments that kind of shifts the way that you look at the world. It's like turning, turning a glass the other way and seeing something completely different. Mm. You then uh, moved from being a teacher to work in the Office of Multicultural Interests in the Western Australian Government and uh, uh, was around that time that we had the September 11 attacks mm. uh, and then the 2002 Bali, Bali bombings. Mm. Uh, and you talk about how that drove an upswing in some of, the, some of the racism, including from your own barista. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that, those, those two points, it was like Muslims were the statues in the room that suddenly came alive and everybody's gaze turned towards these statues in the room coming alive and we became noticeable, uh, whereas before we had blended. Nobody, you know, nobody cared, nobody knew. And, um, yeah, this – and, and you know, I'm not one for ostentatious displays of religion, so I don't um, – I don't wear the traditional scarf or any – kind of thing but I did I did wear a, a necklace that my mother had given me and um, the barista at the coffee shop where uh, I was regularly getting my uh, double shot extra hot skinny cappuccino every morning I still have that that's still my my drink of choice um, turned to me and said well uh, oh you're wearing a necklace. One of the, the other girls said, well, you're wearing a necklace? And I said, yeah. And she said, is that your name? I said, no, no, it's um, it's Arabic and it says um, Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. And this bloke just stops what he's doing and he looks at me and goes, are you a Muslim? And I said, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> totally oblivious. Um, and he said, well, what do you think about um, the deaths of innocent people and terrorism? Da, da, da. Um. And then as I walked out of the coffee shop, he yells out, look out, everyone, she's Muslim, she's probably got a bomb. Yeah, and, and I worked at the Office of Multicultural Interests, worked closely with the Equal Opportunity Commission, would counsel people on racism, and I walked out of there with my head hanging low in silence, holding back the tears till I could get into the bathroom, lock myself in the toilet stall and cry because I was so shocked, I was so taken aback that that, that this was happening to me. You know, um, I'd, seen, I'd seen women who wear the scarf being racially or, or, you know, verbally abused, but for it to happen to me in the middle of the city in my tailored skirt and mm. button-up shirt and my heels... Yeah, it was just a shock. It, it it really brought home how far this was going. It sounds like it was experiences like that one that propelled you into studying counterterrorism and mm. your PhD interviewing 180 uh, people mm-hmm. who had been touched in some way by uh, by, by terrorism. Uh, you talk about yourself at Edith Cowan University and, and Curtin University as being a, a pracademic. Mm. Uh, what is a pracademic? I love that term, pracademic. And I, ha- I can't take credit for that term because it was actually the people, um, uh, Quinton, Quinton Wiktorowitz and Shahad Amanullah from, um, from Washington um, who came up with that term for me because they they said, well, you're not really an academic, Anne, but you're not really a practitioner, you're a pracademic. And it's really somebody who, um, who, who utilises their research in practical ways and translates it into mm. practical ways. Um, and I've never been um, uh, uh, purely into research just for the sake of research or just for the sake of curiosity. I think that, that um, for me, at least... Um, my research had to mean something. It had to be. I had to see it. I had to see it materialise into programs or mm. actions, which is why I, I started up my uh, my own uh, not for profit, so I could put my research into practice. That's people against violent extremism. Pe- yeah. So so yeah. So a pracademic is an is um an an what is it an academic who who practices. In the field, I guess I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> and you interviewed an extraordinary range of, of 
people in, uh, mm. in, in your academic work, in, including white supremacists. Mm. Uh, how did you find your engagement with, uh, with people like Matt? Yeah, Matt. So Matt was a bloke who rang me um, after hearing me on a radio interview and he says, um, I said, um, yeah, how can I help you? And he said, oh, you, you know, you, you were talking about white, white supremacists and radicalisation. I was also talking about all forms of radicalisation on this particular interview. And I said, yep. Yeah. And he said, um, I used to be one. I said, you used to be what? I used to be a white supremacist. I said, are you now? He said, no. I said, you ever been to Perth? He was in Sydney. He says, no. I said, okay, come to Perth. Um, so after a 15-minute meeting, I booked him a flight in a hotel room and um, told my husband, go pick him up from the airport when the plane arrived. And my husband was like, what does he look like? I thought, oh, good question. Hadn't bothered to ask. Um, but it was interesting because uh, Matt and I are fantastic friends now, very, very close. I consider him much like a brother. And... Um, he read the book and he read that chapter and he rang me and he said, you know, when I was coming to your house, he said he couldn't believe that I'd invited him to my house for dinner and he was so nervous coming to my house, he didn't know what to buy, like whether he, should, he was like, should I get halal chocolates, you know, this, this Muslim woman's invited me to her house, what do I do? Um, and he said, and you walk, he walked in and I came out of the kitchen I said, hey, Matt, how the hell are you? And he said, and you just completely put me at ease. But um, yeah, I've forged I've forged some friendships with uh, quite a few former white supremacists, um, and and it's interesting, Andrew, because people ask me all the time, how do you deal with hate? So well, you can't change people. You can't change people. Um, every single one that I've met, everyone that I've le- that I've met who has left hate behind who has walked away from terrorism or walked away from violent extremism in any shape or form, hasn't done it because they read a book that gave them the facts, you know, hasn't done it because they've, you know, ABC fact-checked and figured out that actually, no, migrants aren't uh, taking all the houses, um, you know, taking all the jobs and languishing on the dole at the same time. Um, you know, it hasn't, hasn't done it because um, somebody gave them a book of statistics that proved them wrong. It's because of a personal epiphany. It's because of a personal interaction with somebody who they thought was the enemy. Mm. And you can't make that happen. There are a whole range of, 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 of conditions that need to take place before that can, for that to happen and they have to be in the right mindset and ready to leave hatred behind. Um, so yeah, it it, it uh, has a lot to sheds a lot of light on the whole idea of de-radicalisation and de-radicalisation programs. So, and what advice would you give to your teenage self? Probably um, stop trying to be. Um, like everyone else, you know. I spent my teenage years, you're not going to believe this, Andrew, but I actually used to put lemon juice in my hair to make it blonde and baby oil and sit in the sun because that's what all the blonde, uh, fair-skinned girls at school did, right? So I used to do it too. So you can imagine how silly I looked with lemon juice in my hair to make it blonde and baby oil to get a tan. When I already have a tan, my hair is black. Um, uh, so I would, I think it would just be just, just be yourself. Just, um, you know, all of those, all of those things that 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 you want to erase about you are the things that are going to make make you who you are you know there are other things that make you who you are and are going to make a difference to your life um, but I also write in the book about the advice that was given to me by my teacher my art teacher at the age of 17 when I left school and she handed me a little card with tears in her eyes on my final day of school and I opened the card and it said dear Anne do not be disappointed if your life doesn't turn out the way that you imagined it would in the heady days of being 17. And I'll never forget, they were the exact words 
That's word for word what was written in that card and I'll never forget it because my life certainly hasn't turned out the way that I thought it would when I was 17. Your teenage self also went through other other challenges too. Mm. You, you talk about the challenge of dealing with anorexia there mm. and, and working working through that. So. Yeah, there was there was that. You know, and and again, that's all part of this image of myself um, that that I saw in the mirror, but that I didn't want in my head. Mm. Um, yeah, and and you, you look at the beauty in the fashion industry, and back then. Every every image on the television, every image in magazines, was pink skinned, you know, blonde, um, and cute. And I was not cute. <laughs> I was not a cute little teenager. Um, and 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 it was at that that time as well. It was around that time, around fourteen, when I got into feminism. And got into uh, reading feminist literature, um, but never really felt that I could be included in Western femin in the Western feminist um, vision. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Hmm. What did I used to believe but no longer do? Ah, uh, I used to believe that you could change people, but no, I no longer do, and that's probably because of what I was telling you, people need to change from within. And, um, yeah, you can talk till you're blue in the face. When are you most happy? I'm most happy when I am achieving something and um, able to see change. You talk about your third husband, Dave, as mm. having a, a calming effect on it's, you. Yeah. He ground, grounds you. Uh, do you feel that that helps you achieve more, being that, yeah. that extra layer of calm? Oh, I think he's he's an in, incredibly, incredibly supportive, and he is very calm. In fact, when we first got married, because I was used to, I'm used to like I'm I'm Arab background, so when we talk, we talk. We talk with our hands, and we talk with our feet, and we we raise our voices. Um, and when we first got married, Dave, who's free. Canadian, so you know, you're very polite um, <laughs> and very traditional Canadian. Um, and um, we would have arguments where I would scream and yell and bang doors, and he would be left just sitting there going, What just happened? What just happened? And he'll tell you, like, now we don't argue like that anymore. I've, I've changed a lot, and that's been his calming influence. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, Family, yeah, Dave, um, making sure that I connect with him every single day, especially in this place. This place can can, can be um, surreal. We're having this conversation in Parliament House. Yes, for, uh, that's for, right. For, for listeners, uh, <laughs> listeners you, you talk too in the, in the book about uh, how as a child you used to go down to the beach with your father mm. to... Uh, to, to uh, paint uh, the uh, beach scenes. Do you still use art as a way of grounding yourself? No, I don't actually. You know, um, art um, art for me was a way of really connecting with my dad, and and you know even up to till his death and his final years when he had dementia, I would bring in books of artworks and it would bring him back to me. You know, and we would talk about art. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, unfortunately I don't. There's too much cleaning of brushes involved. and You know, uh, because my dad used to always chide me for not cleaning my brushes properly, so I've got this kind of OCD about making sure that you clean your brushes properly after painting, and so it gets a little bit tedious with all the cleaning that comes after. It's like washing dishes, not my favourite thing either. So, no, not really. It's it's really just being around people. I've, I've uh, And, you know... I think that's what I've come to to learn as well, is that um, is that it's the people that you surround yourself with that have that 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 influence on you. It's not necessarily always coming from you. Okay? Do you have any guilty pleasures? Chocolate is that a guilty pleasure? Is chocolate a guilty pleasure? Depends how you eat it. Oh no, you know what? I have um, cheesy popcorn. I've discovered cheesy popcorn. <laughs> it is the best. It is it is a terribly unhealthy, 
But it is so good. And finally, Anne, uh, which person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think... um, I think... I don't think it's a it's a singular person. I think it's the people that you meet in the everyday. And I don't think it's particularly anyone impressive, you know. They're, I don't I don't get impressed by um, titles or grandeur or um, you know the fact that somebody's on the cover of a magazine. It's the everyday, you know, the people the everyday people that you meet, um, the everyday people that I've met through the various jobs that I've done, um, yeah, the, 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 the people who are, are walking the street and go, you taught me English 20 years ago um, and who have forged a life in Australia um, on that foundation, the people that I meet in my electorate in Cowan, um, the, young, the young people struggling with mental health um, and, uh, yeah, and who are passionate about something, people with passion. Um, and they might, they might not have achieved anything particularly great or significant in their lives, but to me, uh, the, their every day is, is impressive. Their every day is inspirational. And I try and, try and learn something from everybody that I speak to, no matter who they are. And Ali's memoir is Finding My Place. And thanks so much for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.